episode seven of the Fearcast. So for those of you who are new to the show, this is the podcast dedicated to OCD and anxiety, anxiety treatment, um, and trying to get your life back from it, from the thing that's trying to take your life and to suck it all away from you. Um, It's all about trying to find a better way to live with anxiety. So this is a question and answer based podcast. Um, I do a little bit of a teaching segment up front, and then uh, my goal is to be able to answer your questions. So you have questions, or hopefully you have questions, likely you have questions about OCD treatment and anxiety and how it works, and maybe your loved one and how you can best support your family or friend who has anxiety or who you think might have anxiety. So this is a resource for you. So we're just coming off of OCD week. So IOCDF, the International OCD Foundation, um, uh, spearheads a uh, spearheads the OCD Awareness Week, which was uh, uh, October seventh through the thirteenth. Um, so if you have found the uh, the podcast through uh, my Instagram posts at uh, Fearcast Podcast, um, uh, thanks for finding me. Thanks for listening to the show. It really does mean a lot to me that you uh, uh, if you listen. Well, certainly if you listen. Uh, but also if you follow me on Instagram, uh, and uh, the, the, the more eyeballs that see those, the more people who might download, the more uh, chances that uh, uh, this information can get out to somebody who might need it. So and to everybody, if you were, uh, if you were at the SoCal OCD uh, meeting down in Orange County, uh, and, uh, and you met me, hi, I hope you had fun. It was, uh, it was uh, super cool to see everybody uh, get together at a park, play some games, uh, act silly, and uh, uh, compete, against, uh, compete against one another in OCD Jeopardy. Um, I have a little bit of bragging to do that my team destroyed. We won. Not that we're bragging or anything, but we're, we're pretty proud of the win. So the uh, $5 gift card uh, meant a lot. Uh, $5 gift card to uh, Starbucks m- means a lot. And uh, based on how much coffee I drink, uh, that is probably gone by the time you're listening to this episode. All right. So before I get to questions, I want to go over um, th- this thing that our brain does, the silly thing that our brain does, and I call it the underminer. The underminer is the, the this bad guy that all of our brains have. You've got him. I've got him. Your friends had him. Your mom has it. Everybody has it. So I want to go over it a little bit. What is it? Why is it there? And what can we do about it? So first off, uh, what's going on with the name, the underminer? Now, if you know me at all, you know that I'm a huge fan of Disney uh, because I'm, I'm essentially a child uh, in an adult man's body, and, uh, and I'm fine with that. You don't need to make fun of me about it. It's fine. Plenty of people make fun of me. But um, what is The Underminer? So The Underminer is a character that shows up in The Incredible. So um, if you haven't seen the movie, The, uh, the Underminer is a, uh, it's this, it's this little mole person, lives underground. What he does is uh, uh, he burrows into banks, robs the bank, and then escapes uh, back into the underworld, goes back into a, a series of tunnels and caverns. And, and uh, he's actually only one of two bad guys that never gets caught in The Incredibles. So, um, fun fact. All right. Um, so, so what is the underminer to you? What is the underminer of our thoughts? So I, I want you to take a second. And have you ever noticed that little voice in your head that, can, that, that uh, contradicts that negates, that compares, and kind of criticizes every thought you have, kind of undermines all the intentions that you think you have. 
So that is your underminer. What it does is it, it, it hides in the underworld of your thoughts and it finds our vulnerabilities and sneaks in and attacks by stealing our certainty, our confidence and our thoughts and our feelings and our intentions and our assertions. So again, what is this thought? Why is it there? How does it show up? And what in the heck can we do about it? So as I mentioned before, everyone has this. And by the way, everyone has an inner voice. So everyone has this little narrative thing. And it's, it's a component of our metacognition. It's the way that we think about our thoughts. It's not just that we have thoughts, but we also have the fun ability to think about your thoughts. And by the way, if anybody's out there who, who um, is unaware, yes, you can even obsess and hyper-focus on and glom onto the fact that you are thinking about your thoughts. You can think about your thoughts and be annoyed with the fact that you're thinking about your thoughts and, and then wonder, are you thinking too much about your thoughts? And now you're thinking about your thoughts and the thing that you're just about to say right before you say it and then you say it. It's, it's a whole thing. So anyways, the inner voice is our private talk that we use to develop responses to other people. When people ask us questions, we use this inner voice. This inner voice, we use it, helps us to make plans, helps us to make decisions. It's also part of what we use when we're starting to learn and process a language, or if you're learning a new language. It's, uh, it's how we start to kind of put things together. It's how we make sense of our metacognition. It's how we make sense of our own thoughts, our own awareness of... It's also our own awareness of our skills and our abilities, our weaknesses, our hopes, our fears. So it's kind of that voice that says, I know that I can do X. I know that I've had this experience before. And it can take all those and it can help you to develop responses or plans to current situations, future situations. And it's that voice that we use to argue with someone who was, who's not there, or argue with our past, or argue with a fictitious situation somewhere in the future that hasn't quite happened yet. So the internal voice, or metacognition, is focused on monitoring and evaluating our own thoughts towards our understanding of ourself, a problem, the world, or another unknown and developing subject. And by the way, this isn't an inherently a bad thing, but it's a feature of our brain. You've got it, I've got it, everyone's got it. All right. And in a sense, it can actually be pretty helpful. You can think about it as your brain's own devil's advocate. So it's that thing that kind of slides in and suggests a counter-narrative or an alternative to the thought you're already having. And sometimes that can be a good thing. We want to be thinking about, uh, or sometimes we want to be thinking about, um, if we're about to go do something um, uh, uh, that we think is fun. If you're about to go uh, uh, skiing or snowboarding, you're about to go um, you know, o- over a hill you've never gone over before, that little part of our brain might show up and say, hey, you might want to be a little cautious before going in there because you never know it's over there. Uh, If you're about to cross the street, your brain might give you that little thought that says, hey, why don't you look both ways just in case there's a car there? So you have that little thought and you have that little uh, maybe perhaps image in your mind, but also this thought that rolls through that says something bad could happen. And in that sense, it's incredibly helpful. To this point, the underminer thought may be based in some reality. It may be true in self, um, but it also may have zero truth at all. The suggestion the underminer makes isn't always right. It's sometimes right. All it's doing is it's presenting an alternative. 
another suggestion, another way to think about the situation that you're in. It doesn't mean that somehow underneath it all it's right, but it's a suggestion. Because, let's go back to the snowboarding example. You could actually get up and over a hill and find out that it really wasn't that bad. Or it was, well, it, it was a little intense, but it wasn't too bad. You're about to cross the street. Your brain says, hey, by the way, you should look both ways. You look both ways and there's no one there. So it may mean nothing, but remember, it's based in some truth. So your brain is saying, hey, by the way, there might be a car there. It's not saying, by the way, you should watch out for alien spaceships coming your way. That would be a little odd, a little unexpected, I would think, coming in a standard street that, that you and I would cross. So that's a little far out there. But hey, who knows? The underminer might uh, present that thought. The devil's advocate might present that thought. So I wanted to give some examples right now just about how the underminer can show up for you uh, depending on your anxiety and depending on what uh, what makes you nervous. So for someone with religious scrupulosities, this is a, a, a subtype of OCD scrupulosity, which is focused on uh, religious uh, uh, thoughts and concepts. So it could be you singing a song in church, uh, uh, worship song, praising God, whatever the case may be. The underminer might zing in and say, you don't really believe this. And how can you sing the song knowing that you're such a sinful person? For a moral group person, you might be thinking that you support the Me Too movement. But then the underminer zips in and says, Ah, but remember all those things that you did or said to women or other women when you were younger? For relationship OCD, it can be, I love my husband. He's such a great kisser. Zips in. But he's so bad at cleaning the house. Hmm. That's a weird suggestion. Okay, harm OCD. I'm only going to check the locks once because it's my OCD assignment, Underminer would say. Now, you're really only locking them once because you want to put your family in danger. For even general OCD treatment or anxiety treatment for that matter, you could be thinking the thought, I'm making so much progress. Underminer comes in, yeah, but you're still anxious. You still have anxiety sometimes. You're not getting better. Now, how about for those who don't have anxiety? So you might have the thought, I love my kids. The underminer says, yeah, but remember how free you were before you had them. You could have the thought, this is the best job I ever had. Whatever job you have. Underminer comes in, uh, except for all those useless meetings. Kind of undermines and says, your job isn't the best job you've ever had. Uh, it's got those useless meetings. How useless is that? You could have the thought, oh, look at that guy, he's so cute. Underminer comes in, eh, but I've seen cuter. It's this obnoxious thought that comes in that the thought you have or the thing that you're doing that you feel is uh, uh, more consistent with who you are, what you'd like to have, what you, who you'd like to be. But the underminer comes in and just says, well, here's something that's going to kind of knock that down a little bit. So it negates your original statement, your original intention, your original thought, and tries to suck away a little of the truth to it, or say that perhaps that thought is not true. So we have the temptation to engage it. We have the temptation to try to get to the bottom of what it is, and to evaluate it to its end, 
in the hopes that maybe it'll reveal some deep down or hidden truth about myself or my feelings, about life, or about my husband, or about my wife, or about my job, uh, so I can, I, I can know for sure about me or my future or what I'm doing or make a correction in my life. Now, we think that it has, that that underminer statement is the truth about who we are. But likely speaking, it's not. The underminer doesn't really know who you are truly, but it's really just there to kind of just drop bombs on your life and to not contribute anything reasonable to the discussion. But once it throws out that little information, it just kind of backs away, just kind of slinks back into the little caverns that it came from. It's just there to, prov- to start chaos in your life under the lie that this is meaningful. Okay, so now that we know what it is, what can we do about it? So the underminer wants you to notice its, its little voice and then follow it down as it is, through its escape path into the depths of your thoughts and feelings and worries. And it wants to trap you by baiting you with those half-truths and those fleeting thoughts or those fleeting feelings. Now, once you're in its kind of twisting kind of catacombs, um, you can be trapped there for hours trying to figure out what's really true and also trying to figure out then how to get out of it. So did you hear anything in the examples I gave before that sounded like you? If so, you're already on the right path because you're already noticing the underminer. You're already noticing that little voice that's trying to present that counter statement to you or about you. And then what can we do about it? Well, we beat the underminer like we beat any good bully or any good internet troll and just simply not engage, to resist engaging with it. So even when noticing your inner voice and thinking about this episode or thinking while you're listening to this episode, you might even notice a voice that disagrees with what I'm saying. It might say things like, oh, that's great for some people, eh, but doesn't apply to me. Or you might even have that thought, this will never work. Likely that's the underminer's voice. So in trying to recognize that underminer's voice, when you have a thought that feels typically accurate to you, kind of more or less consistent with who it is that you are and historically what you've been about. Now we're talking like 51% typically you, like more than, more than not. You might have the thought that shows up as, yeah, but, or some other contrarian type of thought. That's likely your underminer voice. Now remember, with all things, we don't need to be 100% certain all the time. And that we likely aren't 100% certain all the time anyways. Even with things that we like, we don't want to do them all the time. Even with things we find personally meaningful and life-giving, it's not the perfect fit every time. You can put it this way. The best paintings in life have more than one color. We need a little bit of variety. Sometimes you might say, I love cheeseburgers. The underminer is going to come in and say, you also like pizza. Here's the thing. It, it, it's kind of right. You also, like, you also like pizza, but you're saying, I really like cheeseburgers. It's still a true statement about you. You might say 51% of you would say, I like cheeseburgers. 
the underminer is trying to say, ultimately, nope, you don't like cheeseburgers. That's a lie. What you really like is pizza. That's what you're about. Self. And it gets a little extreme from there eh, with this silly example. But as an example, we start to notice that it just starts to challenge or give this other thought or this, this uh, other point that kind of leads us outside of what it is that we want to be thinking about. So what can we do with it? First, notice your underminer even for the briefest of seconds. Even just with a simple, huh, or, meh, eh. And then, shift back to your original thought, your original intention, or whatever discussion that you're already in. Spending any amount of time trying to fight with the underminer only gets you stuck further underground in its trap. The best advice for fighting the underminer is to stay above ground. So if you had the thought, I love cheeseburgers, and the underminer comes in and says, no, you like pizza. <sighs> that thought again. Well, meh, okay. You're right, I do like pizza sometimes, but burgers are where it's at for me, for right now at least. How about a more extreme example? I love my spouse. Your brain says, yeah, well, they're really bad at this. Or uh, your ex-girlfriend or your ex-boyfriend, eh, they were still pretty cute too. Here's the thing, your ex-boyfriend or girlfriend might have also been really cute too, but it's trying to undermine the love that you have for your, your current uh, boyfriend, girlfriend, or spouse. It's trying to say, no, you don't really love them, you, you really do, you really love your ex. Now, we could spend hours and hours and hours obsessing about whether or not you do, whether or not you're in a sham relationship now, whether or not you're truly supposed to be with your other uh, your ex-girlfriend or ex-boyfriend. But that's an endless loop. That's an endless cycle. And you're just getting further and further and further down in that hole. And ultimately speaking, it is a waste of time. If you're listening to this podcast, likely speaking, you have been through those cycles for yourself. Even if the thought was, my hands are clean, your brain says, are you sure? Are they totally clean? So you might have a little bit of bacteria. Remember that Purell only says it's 99.9% .9 effective, but what about that 0.1%? That's the one that's going to kill you. That's the one that's going to kill your cousin or your brother or your sister or your spouse or your puppy. Something awful like that. Ugh. Our brain's a jerk. All right. So the other thing about this is I hear you already out there saying, or at least some of you out there saying, how do I know it's not my voice but that of the underminer? Well, again, think about it. You know you've likely been fighting with the underminer when you've been thinking and arguing with yourself for hours or days about the same issues and having never gotten closer to a sense of certainty or that 100% confidence. And likely, you never will. Super optimistic, right? All right. Now, the sooner that you give up on that fight and just go ahead with whatever the 51% is, the most likely, the most historically true thought, feeling, position, intention, whatever it is, the sooner that you can get back to your life and you move forward with it. So another thing is to resist any erroneous comparison or delusion that other people seem so sure about themselves. Now, I'll, I'll say this because I, I haven't talked to everybody on earth. Maybe those people are out there. Maybe there are these people that are 100% certain. And, and you know what? Good for them. Whatever. But you know what? 
For the most part, I tend to think that the people out there who say that they're 100% certain about X, if you really press them, they aren't 100% certain. So everyone out there, if they're being truly honest and intellectually honest with themselves, they have the underminer, and they're likely not 100% certain about a lot of things in life. But that's okay. We all have found a way to continue to survive, continue to move forward in life as best we possibly can. And that's still a wonderful thing. Now, I know, again, some of you are out there asking, but what if it's right, Kevin? What if the underminer is right? I'm not going to engage with that thought with you, and I encourage you not to as well, because that is an endless argument yet again. What if it's right? What if it's wrong? Again, acknowledge the thought, go, oh, of course, the underminer's there. All right, well, I'm, I'm going to move on, and I'm going to take that risk that maybe it's not right. But with that underminer voice, notice it. Make room for the underminer in your, in your life. If you say, I will not have the underminer in my life, you better believe the underminer is going to show up and it's going to show up in a hurry. But then accept that uncomfortable uncertainty that you get with the potential 49% is giving you. That little bit of you that says, yeah, but this, Ugh, it's not 100%. That 49% might give you on discomfort, but again, we're going with that 51%, and then we're moving through to the next topic or the next step in the plan, whatever that is. Now, eventually, as we've talked about before a bunch of times on this show, eventually the discomfort and the uncertainty is going to drift away, and you will have gotten back to your life, But you will, and you will not have wasted hours tying yourself up in emotional and mental knots just to realize that you're in the same place when you started. So, your challenge this week, if you choose to accept it, is to notice the underminer. Call him out. Call him out by name. I see you, underminer. I see where you're at. Oh, that's your voice. Okay. When it comes in with that opposing thought, you can say, eh, okay. Oh, there it is. Weird. Huh. That's where it is. Okay. Well, I'm going to move on. And I would encourage you to then move on and take the risk to go with what your original thought was. I love cheeseburgers. You could also love the chicken fingers. Maybe you could, but you know what? Go with the cheeseburger. You could spend hours and hours trying to figure that one out. And ultimately, it's going to be taking a risk because we might make a mistake. I know this is, the, this is what the underminer doesn't want you to do is to make a mistake. But guess what? You can make a mistake. It's not the end of the world. It's likely not the end of the world. You've survived. You've made mistakes before. And you got through it. You can get through this one too. So your challenge, notice the underminer, call him out, and move on. It's just not worth it. All right. Got a question coming up. Reddit user Polo Vega Mardelt, I'm probably mispronouncing that, asked, I'd like for you to talk about the stigma of mental illness and how it affects people until they decide to seek treatment and or help. I think that'd be a good topic and how it makes someone suffering from mental illness feel 
and what loved ones and friends can do in order to motivate them to go and seek help. I'd love to see one of your podcasts on that and hope everything goes well. Well, thanks so much for the question. Um, that's a great question, especially coming off of um, coming off of OCD week. I spoke with a bunch of people recently about how they can motivate their family and friends to try to get into treatment. We'll probably address one of those situations uh, or one of those questions in a future episode. But stigma against mental health is enormous. It's huge. Um, if you just think about some of the st- statistics about mental health, According to the World Health Organization, one in 13 people are going to suffer from anxiety. Now, in the U.S., major depressive disorder affects 6.7%, so 16 million people of the population. OCD affects 1% of the population, so that's about 2.2 million people. Generalized anxiety, 3.1%. About 6.8 million people. Panic disorder, 2.7%. That's about 6 million people. So likely you know someone who has one of these disorders if you're not one of these people themselves. The Anxiety and Depression Association of America, the ADAA, not to be confused with the American Dodgeball Association of America, has said on their website that uh, despite the fact that uh, these things are highly treatable or that anxiety is highly treatable, just about and just under 40% of those suffering with anxiety will seek treatment. So why is it that people don't seek treatment if it's highly treatable? People don't seek treatment for a number of reasons. So we'll go over a few here. So uh, one of the reasons, money. Um, Treatment can be prohibitively expensive, especially when insurance uh, doesn't cover it sometimes. Or trying to find a therapist can be really hard. I'll talk about that here in a second. Another is time. On average, treatment can be anywhere between three and six months of weekly therapy of weekly sessions um, and can be shorter, but it can also be significantly longer based on a number of factors, based on the intensity of the symptoms, based on somebody's willingness to engage in treatment, based on um, how much effort and how much, uh, uh, how, well, how much effort they're able to put into treatment outside of the session. So a number of things. People don't seek treatment because it takes a ton of effort ERP, just for the time that someone is in treatment, is a daily exercise. And facing one's fear takes a ton of emotional energy and can be exhausting or overwhelming. And maintaining progress after treatment requires a lot of self-awareness, requires uh, uh, vigilance and diligence to stay on top of kind of the encroaching fears and, you know, to again, drag yourself up and do the things that uh, are, are difficult in your life. People barely go to the gym. People don't typically want to face their biggest fears or do something that feels incredibly scary. One of the reasons that people don't start treatment is because they don't even know where to start. They don't even know how to get involved into treatment. Now, now is the best time on earth, I think, uh, uh, to have a mental illness based on how easy it is to access information. The internet, if you have access to it, I'm assuming you do, you're listening to this, that uh, uh, there is a zillion outlets out there that have pretty good information about treatment. There's my podcast, there are other podcasts out there that have information about it. There are, there are endless books out there in the library. There's a lot of information out there, but just trying to figure out where to get started in treatment can be difficult. 
and I'll be honest, uh, as, as you all know, uh, me being a therapist, when I, when I uh, a couple years ago, sought my own therapy, I took a second and went, where am I going to find the right type of therapist for me? Now, I wasn't trying to find a, a, an anxiety specialist, but I was just trying to find someone who was a good fit. Now, you can go on to uh, a Psychology Today, or you can go on to Therapist Finder, or you can go on to your... Um, you can go into Yelp, even. You can go into the uh, uh, your insurance uh, panel, and uh, and you'll you'll get a list of names. But how do you know that any of them are good? How do you know that you're going to be comfortable with them? How do you know that any of them are going to be effective in understanding you or helping you through your struggles? Ugh, it was exhausting and frustrating for me. And I'm a therapist. All right, separate conversation. Another reason that people don't seek treatment is from the judgment of others or even from yourself. People don't want to seek treatment because they fear that other people are going to view them as weak, or that they're not going to be able to handle it, or that they can't handle life. It's this, this narrative. It's kind of the narrative that the underminer would give you. Some people will, pa- will pass these lies on. The symptoms are just a phase, that you'll grow out of them. Just, you don't need to be in therapy. Eh, you'll grow out of them. Or if you just change your diet or find a better friend group or start exercising, the symptoms will just go away. So those are some reasons why people wouldn't seek treatment. Now, what can family and loved ones do? Well, be supportive without accommodating compulsions. Be encouraging without demanding that they seek treatment in your time. And also, be loving without condition. Also, and perhaps even most importantly, what friends and family can do to best be helpful is to ask how they can be helpful. If you are the family or loved one of someone with anxiety or OCD, ask the person with anxiety and OCD how you can be best of best help, how you can support them. Now, here's the thing. Maybe... Maybe one way that they'll ask you to support them is by watching their kids while they're at therapy sessions. Maybe they'll ask you to, to talk through how hard therapy is. Maybe they'll, want, um, maybe they'll want you to offer some, you know, simple words of encouragement from time to time. Just, you know, the attaboy, you can do it, go get them, you got this, things like that. And you know what? Maybe they don't want you to say anything at all. Just, just say nothing about it. But just continue to be a friend or a loved one through all the ebb and flow of all the anxiety, uh, the anxieties that they're going to have, and also the ebb and flow of therapy. Just be the friend and loved one. Be the boyfriend or girlfriend. Be the mom or dad. You don't need to be their cheerleader at all times. But I'll say, ask them. And by the way, if you're the sufferer, I want you to think about what it is that you actually want. That's going to be helpful to actually share this with that person. I think that would be the best thing to do is just to simply ask them. You know what? They might just tell you. So in that vein, for those of you out there who have received support from family or friends during treatment, what did you need from them at the time? And what helped you? And also equally important, what did you find unhelpful? And what did you want family or friends to stop doing? I would love to know. uh, And I'd love to know and share these tips uh, on a future episode. So if you feel comfortable, uh, and again, it can be, it can certainly be anonymous, um, but 
leave a little note or, or leave some of these little tips uh, in the comments section on the episode page of uh, fearcastpodcast.com, or uh, you can write them in, in the comments section on the episode's Instagram page. You can email them to me at questions at fearcastpodcast.com. And again, you can simply write on there, keep us anonymous. Uh, if you want to email me that, you can leave a fake name for me. But, um, but what, what helped you? What helped encourage you? What was supportive for you? And I'll share those for others. And then if you have this, if you would like your family or friends to do this, play that episode for them. And that might start a good conversation. So again, thanks so much for the question. All right, that's about enough of that. So to leave a question for a future episode, go to the Ask a Question link at fearcastpodcast.com or or better yet, call me and use your own voice. Call me at 714-594-9281. So if you liked the show, please tell a friend word, word of mouth uh, from a trusted friend or a group member is the best advertising this show could ever have. Um, you can also head over to iTunes and you can rate the show and you can write a little uh, review there. Um, now, if you don't like the show, you can just go ahead and keep your opinions to yourself. Now, um, you can also follow me on Instagram and Facebook as well. Um, so uh, I, if you find me over there, I'm, uh, I'm dropping adorable little content and uh, life-changing doodles from time to time. So uh, go ahead and check it out. Um, so as always, remember the fear cast is not a substitute for psychotherapy. Uh, if you want to find more information about therapy, um, you can go to fearcastpodcast.com and go to the find help page. So until next time, take a risk, challenge yourself, and don't take your brain too seriously. Bye.